Amen. Amen. Good morning. Hmm. Great song. Great song. I want to say uh, I'm thankful that Gary and Sherry is here. Been praying for you guys. Uh, Rick, you know I always pray for you. Glad you made it back home. Uh, we're still lifting up, lifting you up with Joanne. And uh, I've been to a lot of funerals in my life. And uh, the one that we have for Joanne and for you, you, your daughter, just blew me away. I got lost going to find, find the church. But when I got there, I was telling people how they just boasted in your daughter. She was a lover. She is a lover of Jesus Christ. So we still have you guys in our prayer, okay? Uh, we're in the book of 1 Corinthians. I gave you chapter one. I gave you the history of Corinth two Sundays ago. I hope you remember that. You don't want me to repeat that history for you. <laughs> and allow me to say that 1 Corinthians is addressed entirely to the whole church in Corinth with no suggestions that Paul is speaking now to one group or the next. And that's really important because these factors together, they suggest that the traditional viewpoint, to me, comes up a little lacking. Crucial points, and my basic stance is that the historical situation that was in Corinth was primarily one of conflict. And the conflict was between Paul, who had, well, Jesus Christ birthed the church, but he used Paul to birth it. So they have a little conflict with Paul. Paul's been gone now about three and a half years. He's gotten this letter for, from Chloe. Uh, and Paul, he loves the church of Corinth. And so when he sits down to write, it's almost like he's jousting with them. The, the culture of Corinth, and we talked about the, the, the culture at Corinth, it, it was infecting the church. And you guys know, wherever there's a church in Jesus Christ, we should be the salt and the light. We should have an effect. No matter where we are planted, we should have an effect of Jesus Christ where we're at. But these guys aren't doing that. The community as a whole, they were upset it was really an anti-Pauline uh, view of things. And this book is right for our culture today. With so many churches being affected by the culture, we should, once again, we should affect the culture. Instead of being affected by it, we should be the salt and the light that Jesus has called us to be. And Paul, when he writes this letter, he's concerned that the Corinthians are being influenced by their culture. That's easy to do today, to be influenced by the culture. The only way you can keep from being influenced by this culture, if you're born again, you must be in the word and you must be in prayer and you must be uh, assembling together with brothers and sisters or else you will look just like the world and we don't want to be like that. What they need more than anything or anyone, the church of Corinth, 
is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul, he doesn't care if they like him or not. He, everybody likes to be liked, especially in a fellowship. But Paul has a higher standard, and that standard, he's going to stand before Jesus Christ one day. And so even though he loves this church of Corinth, he has to address them, and he does it. We'll find out. They're hard words, but he does it in love. So Paul starts out with the salutation or else the greeting. And almost in all of Paul's letters in the Greco-Roman period, it began with the threefold salutation to the writer's name, to the addressee, and then the greetings. Very often, the next item in the letter would be a thanksgiving. And they would give the thanksgiving to whatever God they worship. We know Paul is telling them thanks through Jesus Christ for the well-being of the congregation. Paul's letters follows the Greco-Roman style. And the salutation is the first three verses. Remember, he's writing from Ephesus. Paul's mind, as he begins to write, as he begins to be born by the Holy Spirit, Paul is chomping at the bit. He is jousting. He starts off jousting with this assembly here. He has so much stuff to tell them. And you know, really, again, it's Paul's flavor, but he's really getting it from the Holy Spirit. So Paul is giving them everything the Holy Spirit wanted them to know. And notice he begins... Let me say this, the two letters of, of Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians, begin simply with Paul, Savanus, and Timothy. Thessalonians was a great church. He didn't have too much problem with them. But here, Paul, he says his co-worker at the time was Sothenes. But before he says Sothenes, he says, call to be an apostle. The Greek doesn't have to be in it. It's just called an apostle. So Paul's letting him know, even though he hasn't been there for 18 months, I birthed you guys. You know how much I love you. You know how much I preach to you the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. And now I hear that you're, you're, you're going along with Sophia, a wisdom, and you think wisdom, and this is wisdom of the world, is more important to you than the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. In the Greek, it just says Paul, an apostle. It doesn't have to be. That's why it's in italics of Jesus Christ. And then he says, through the will of God. Let me straighten something out this morning because I love my New King James version of the Bible. I stick with it. I, I go and read some others sometimes. But they really have it wrong when, when Paul says Jesus Christ when they wrote it. When he says, through the, of, of Jesus Christ, to be apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, I'll never forget being under uh, Pastor Terry in a Messianic Jewish fellowship, and he would read the scriptures and break it down, and he says, now, what, in front of everybody in the assembly, he says, what does Christ Jesus mean? And I knew I had the right answer. And so I just raised my hand and, and said it, because I... Pastor Terry, a great teacher, 
a great teacher. So I said, it means King Jesus. And he, and he said, Victor, you're right. That's what it means. And so Paul, we will see him use the words Christ Jesus many of times. And the reason that's so important, not just picking over words, when they had to come up with another disciple, it tells us this in Acts 1, 20 through 22, and the criteria for being a disciple, it says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it, speaking of Judas, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time of the Lord Jesus, so they were there, went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, that's, that's the criteria, to the day when he was taken up. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And we know they picked Matthias without even praying. I think on those 12 stones in the kingdom of God, instead of Matthias, it's going to be Paul there. I have to wait and find out about it. I think Paul was the guy they wanted. So the criteria for being an apostle you had to see Jesus. I guess I should say you had to hang out with Jesus before he was glorified. Before he was glorified. So that's why the rest of the 11, they could call him Jesus Christ. That's what he went by. But to Paul, it was never Jesus Christ. It was always Christ Jesus, King Jesus, because Paul met him on the road to Damascus, and he saw the glorified Christ. And then when he spent those three and a half years in Arabia, it was with the glorified Christ. So that's the only thing he knows. He never seen. That's why he says, I never met him in the flesh. He saw his glorified body, and he couldn't get rid of that. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Christ Jesus. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, because even after he spends those three and a half years in Arabia, he still doesn't go to Jerusalem. He goes back to his home. And, 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 and I think it was Barnabas had to coax him, go on to Jerusalem, man. They've already heard about you. So he says, and I, to me, just... just I believe this. Paul seems to have a chip on his shoulder because the Judaizers would always come behind him. All of the other, I believe the rest of the apostles thought they were more than he was. But you have to remember, Paul, Paul wrote some of his epistles before Matthew, Mark, and John even writes their gospel. But this is what it says. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, thank God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Check out what he says. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. To those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So to Paul, the apostle Paul, Jesus was always Christ Jesus. And that's why in your Bible, it really should say Christ Jesus, not Jesus Christ. Not that it makes that much of a difference. I'm just telling you why it should. In, Paul, in the apostle 
Paul's epistles, he says, then he says, and Sophonies, our brother. And it should say, once again, it's, it's in italics, the brother. To the church of God. That's how Paul starts it out. The ecclesia, the assembly, the called out ones. That's who the believer is, the called out ones, which is at Corinth. That word ecclesia, they use it, Corinth, for a, an assembly, for the elites. They always use the, that word assembly. So Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is saying, no, 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 they're not the elite. You know me. You have fellowship with me. You are the elite. So he calls them the the assembly. But Paul says the church is the ecclesia to those who are. Then he says to those who are sanctified to render or to acknowledge to be hollow. It was the, the utensils in the tabernacle, in the temple that they would use for different things. Those were hollowed. You couldn't use them for anything else. That's what Paul is saying that the believer is. We've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. And then he gives us two addresses here. He says at Corinth and in Christ. Those are two addresses. We're the church in Buford in Christ. All of your problems is not in Christ. All of your problems is here at Buford. (laughs) Yeah, and that's what he's saying. Your problems are here at Buford. There's no problems in heaven. And these are the called out ones. They're at Corinth. To those, then he says, to those who are sanctified. That means to hollow, to separate. Once again, it's the utensils in the tabernacle. You could not use those utensils for ordinary means. They had to be used in the tabernacle. That's why he calls us sanctified. We are now, if we are born again, we should only be used for Jesus Christ and his purposes. If we're not being used and you're a believer for Jesus Christ and his purposes, we're casting shade on him. That's what we're here for. In Christ Jesus, then he gives them, he was called to be an apostle. He says, but you guys, don't worry about it. You're called to be saints who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. He's just not yours. He's many believers, Lord. They are sanctified. And this is beautiful because they're sanctified. It's a present passive tense. And that means I had nothing to do with it. You had nothing to do with it. It wasn't because you were such a goody two-shoes and you did everything right that God said, I need him in my kingdom. No, you had nothing to do with it. That's called grace. He just decided to pick you. He decided to pick you. Nothing good in us, but he decided to pick you. That's why they can't, there's no boasting. And he's talking to this Corinthians church, and it is really messed up. Paul says to the church, the ecclesia, the assembly of God, which is at Corinth to those who are, are having been made holy. That is the state that they are in. They are holy. They might not be acting like they're holy, but Jesus, when he sees them, when he looks at them, they are holy. Second Corinthians eleven two says this, Paul writing, he says, for I am jealous 
for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband. We belong to Jesus that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. While we're living down here in this cesspool, we should be chaste virgins. We should be thinking about the day the Lord calls us home. That's what Paul is saying. Remember in his letters in First and First and Second Thessalonians, he he only said grace to you and peace. That was his first letter there. Then his second letter, he adds the source from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But here he says grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is just remember when I I tell you guys pretty often that I learned this from Chuck Swindoll. He says. We should read the Bible enough that when we speak, we speak Bibline. We should be having Bible words in all our conversations and all those things. Well, this is what Paul means by here, because Paul will take grace and peace, which they use all the time, and he would make it biblical. He made it biblical. The the word is shireen, to rejoice, but in the salutation, Mean, uh, it means simply greetings. But Paul, in his hands and in his thoughts and in his mind, we get that word charis, grace, to which is added the traditional Jewish greeting, shalom means peace. And that is grace to you and peace. It really sums up the whole of Paul's theological thinking here. The sum total of all of God's activity toward his human creatures is found in the word grace. God has given himself to us mercifully and bountifully in Christ. Nothing is deserved and nothing is achieved. No, grace is found in that word peace. Peace means well-being, wholeness, or welfare. The one flows out of the other, and both together flows from Yahweh, from God our Father. From Genesis to Revelation is his salvation plan. He, he worked it out. We have nothing to boast about. Verse 4 says, I thank my God always concerning you. For the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus. Now, this church is acting, acting up everything. And Paul still says, I thank my God for you guys. Isn't that amazing? Paul's ability to thank God for everything this church has done. And it's because of the gifts that they have God has blessed them with gifts. Paul's going to say, y'all, y'all come, don't come behind in any of these gifts. That's not your problem. You don't come behind in any, but you're abusing them. So he thanks God for his gracious gift that he gives them, but they're handling it. They're abusing it. They're beginning to be puffed up because they can speak in tongues or they can prophesy and all these things. That's what he's saying. I wish I was better at that. When my brother or sister does something I don't like, I should be able to clear all that muck of Victor away and see the grace and the goodness in that, in their lives. That's how we, be more, we can be like Christ. Paul realizes 
It's not with the Corinthians believers gift, but in their attitude toward these gifts. The gifts, they're from God. Paul is bound to give thanks for them. They are good things. They have been misused. He's thanking God, but he will have to redirect their focus here pretty soon. And so he says in verse 5, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. Enriched is the word plutizo. We get the, the word plutocrat from. You're, Paul is saying you're rich. You're rich. If you're paying your bills, if you're driving around, if you're doing all those things that we do every day, and even if we weren't doing that, the Holy Spirit says you're rich. Why am I rich? Because he chose me. He chose us. And I think it's Ephesians that says we, we have all the spiritual blessings in the, heavenly, in the heavenly place. So we're rich. That's why he says, in everything by him in all utterance, that's speaking logos and all knowledge, gnosis, the prophetic revelation of Jesus Christ. They have all that. And he picks these because they are noticeable and they are evidence in this congregation here. Verse 6, he says, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. This church is acting up. And he says, the testimony of Christ has been confirmed in you. He means that the gifts are evidence, that their testimony of Christ is confirmed, but let's not stop there, Paul says. What about grace and peace and love and all those things? The church of Corinth was carnal. They were carnal people. And God had poured out one gift to them, and they are proud of that gift. But what about faith, hope, and love? Verse 7 tells us, Paul says, so that you come short in no gift. There it is. Eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. They misused a lot of the gifts. They didn't come short in any of them. There's a whole part of the church today that thinks this. If you speak in tongues or you exercise certain spiritual gifts, you're more spiritual than other parts of the church. And once again, this is what Paul is really, they're upset with Paul at, that word pneumatica. Paul is not spiritual. He's not full of the spirit all the time. It's better to have wisdom. And Paul is straightening that out. They spoke in tongues. They prophesied. They had all of these different gifts. And at the same time, they were famous for sexual sins. Hmm. They were suing one another. At the same time, they were getting drunk at the communion table. So they had spiritual gifts. Don't, don't let that trip you up, that God would lavish these gifts on a person, and then you find out they're living all sideways in the world. You will know them by their fruit, not how much they can speak in tongues or any of that. They were lousy witnesses, and that's why Paul is writing this letter. God had been gracious to him, pouring gifts out, and they are bragging on how many, how many gifts they have, and they become lousy witnesses. That's why Paul is writing this letter. When we read Acts chapter 1, 
when the disciples were told after Jesus was resurrected to wait in Jerusalem till they are endued with power to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We need to remember that, that their empowerment was relative to the unsaved world. Remember at, at, at uh, Corinth, you had two places where the ships could come in and they had all kinds of people filtering in and filtering out. And so God gave them that gift of speaking in tongues. So when a, 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 a people would come and didn't know their language, he let them, you can hear the, understand the gospel. It wasn't that they were so uh, talented and they were so uh, gifted that they would do that. God allowed them to. And it was relative to Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We need to remember that empowering is relative to the unsaved world. And it was relative to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. To churches being born, to life being brought. It isn't just we think many of us, the truth is that Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power to be witnesses. Marturus is the word. Here, these Corinthians had all of that going on in regards to spiritual gifts, but they were lousy witnesses. Paul said, you come behind in no spiritual gift, waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is waiting expectantly looking for the coming, the apocalypto. Are you waiting for Jesus this morning? Were you waiting for Jesus last Tuesday? That's what, that, it, they go, the, the, the scriptures go on and say, when you're waiting for Christ Jesus, that purifies you. That, that's what it does. They weren't living like they were waiting. 1 John 3.3 3 tells us, and everyone who has this hope, the return of Jesus in him purifies himself just as he is pure. If we sit here this morning and say, we really believe Jesus Christ is coming soon. And we really believe that he could come at any moment. That should determine the way we live. If you're struggling and you've backslidden, you don't want the Lord to come back now, do you? <laughs> no, I, I've been there. No, I, I, Lord, please don't come back. I'm acting a fool. Give me, give me time to repent. That's, that's why he says, if we have our focus on the Lord and his return, you're going you're gonna to live it. But the beautiful thing about being free from all that is living in such a way that you said, Lord, I don't care if you come back right now. Tomorrow, five days ago, I know my lifestyle. I will be ready. And the Corinthian church, they weren't ready. And that brings freedom to our lives. When we are living for the Lord, we don't come anytime. That, that makes us thirsty for Jesus to come. When we're living holy lives. That's why Paul gave you that scripture. Paul says, you come behind in no spiritual gift, waiting for the revelation, the unveiling, the uncovering 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul will talk a lot more about that in chapter 15. And look at the way the Corinthians are living. When he gets to verse 10, Paul will say now, and then he starts to go at them a little bit. But he describes them first, waiting for the revelation, the unveiling of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day when he comes of our Lord Jesus. I love that word confirm. It's a legal term from the Roman courts. It's, it means you're guaranteed. When you are born again and it really took and you know you're born again, the Holy Spirit is residing in you. That's the seal of approval. Paul says it's guaranteed he's going to confirm you. He's going to confirm you to the end that you may be blameless. That's amazing to me. I'm reminded of Jude 124 when he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He's saying to the Corinthians that he wants to present them as a chaste virgin. We shouldn't be getting spotted by the world. We almost, except for the people in it that the Lord has put on our heart to witness to, we almost should just despise it. This is Satan's domain. He rules it right now. The home run has been hit. Remember that. Jesus has already ran around the bases. The scoreboard just don't reflect that yet. But Jesus says he's already won that. He's saying to the Corinthians, who will also confirm, guarantee you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. They weren't blameless, not here. In the third chapter, he's going to tell some of them their works are going to be burnt up because he will challenge them. We all need that at times about their behavior. But he's going to say, but in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, as they come to the Bema seat, there you'll be judged for your works. But you're going to get there, and he has it guaranteed. That's what that word means. There his completed work on the cross, they will stand there blameless. They might not have many gifts. I didn't say that. But they will get there. Verse 8 says, who will also confirm? That means to call aloud, to utter. That's what he did in that little 10 by 7 jail cell when I was in there, about 15 guys, a DUI. Of all the places he could have called me, he called me in there. And I knew he called me. And like I told you before, and the jailer was coming by, I said, hey, could you, could you hand me a Bible? And all the guys laugh. Oh, you got chain game religion. All oh, this, they're laughing. He brought the Bible, and I still have that Bible today. And when I got in my own cell, I told you, I just read from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis to Revelation. And I said, man, Lord, my mama told you, told me you were good. Now I see. And, 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 and I'll never forget being on that bunk, and I said, Lord, you know, I could do this for a living. And look where I'm at. I told him that. I never, I, I never thought 
I'd be pastoring the church. But he gave me such a love for his word that I would just read it. And then he, he guided me so much, like I told you about Pastor Terry the, at the Messianic Jewish Fellowship. I guess he could see something in me that I, I couldn't see yet. And he would just study. He would get, let me know you this wrong. Let me, let me teach you this. Let me teach you that. And he would just do that. And I would mess up two or three times a week. I'm here to tell you. And I'd call Terry crying. I started drinking. I messed up and this and that. And he'd come. He discipled me. And we'd read the word. And finally, it took. That's what it takes. And that's why Paul loves this Corinthian church so much. He says, who will also confirm you? Who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? First Thessalonians 5.24, he just says this. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Verse 9, he tells us God is faithful, completely trustworthy, by whom, and we know we're not faithful, but God is faithful. Paul joins that reality. He has that spirit in him. He has that word in him that God is faithful, and God has called these people in Corinth. And he's going to make sure they be there at the end, guiltless on that day, because God is faithful. Verse 9 says, Paul says, you are called. Just didn't get close. You were called into fellowship. Cornelia. That's one time they use it. They use it two different ways. Of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren. The Holy Spirit calls them brethren, even though they're acting a fool at Corinth. So don't be too hard on yourself. But just remember... The word will purify you. The Holy Spirit will do that. Hey, come on. You can walk. You can do it. Just stay in the word. Stay in prayer. Hang out with the believers. You will walk. I've guaranteed that. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. Paul urges unity, thrice repeating the same thing, and that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly joined together. A beautiful word in the same mind, and in the same judgment. He isn't implying now that in the Christian faith, you've got to be in uniformity. You have to work at that. We all dress the same way. We all wear the same clothes. We all do that. No, he's talking about unity that happens when he's placed us in Christ. I said last week, or Jonathan got on to me. I said, if I wasn't a Christian, of course I wouldn't be here. But most of you guys I wouldn't even hang out with. And you probably wouldn't hang out with me. Because you had to be doing the same thing I was doing. My mom was here, so I can't tell you everything I was doing. But when I was a Christian, when I was a Christian, like a hand in glove. Oh, I got this. You talk about Christ all the time. Yeah, isn't he lovely? All those things. You're just bonded. I told you guys when we would go on a mission trip, especially to uh, Cali, Columbia, on the plane ride, I was saying, Lord, I hope these, I hope they like me. Everybody likes me. I hope they like, I'm a black dude, Lord. And I, I, I hope they like me. And I get there and they're just talking about Christ. And 
just God knows what he's doing when he places you in Christ. Because the argument for the need of diversity comes in chapter 12. So what does he mean by saying that they be of the same mind and of the same opinion? Paul is speaking about agreeing on what they say. The answer lies in what he says negatively, which reflects the actual situation at Corinth, that there be no division, schisma among you. We get the English word schism from, but it doesn't mean that. That's what the New King James will do for you. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> it does not mean that. The best example I can give you is John 9, 16. This is how it's used, division. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he, d- he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division. There's the word. They're not on the same relationship. They're not speaking the same thing among, among them. Used here where various groups have divided opinions about Jesus. That's why it's so important that we be on the same wavelength. Paul is saying that the Corinthians were divided over the various leaders, which have developed into jealousy and quarrels. That's why Paul goes on to urge that they rather be, he wants them to be knit together perfectly and united. I think I've said this before, but let me bless you guys with something again. When we decided to start a church, uh, Pastor Brian said, hey, you got to have a name, got to have a name. And Lori, they were bothering me for a name. And they they called me and I said, I think I have a name. And I was, and I I told you, I love uh, Chuck Swindoll. I'm not going to tell you the story, but I love Chuck Swindoll, especially when he was young. Oh, man, he could teach. But anyway, I had heard this. He was speaking about Galatians, and the word was cartonizo, a mending term. And I was going to say, hey, let's call it Cardenizzo. And Brian said, you can't call it that. <laughs> he heard, you can't call it that. So I said, I'll use the better word, restore, because it means the same thing. This is what it says in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore. There's that word. You come along and restore. Cardenizzo. It's a mending it's a restoring word. It's where you, you, the, a bone is out of place. You don't want anybody to grab and just throw it in place like Mel Gibson used to do. In, <laughs> remember that? Yeah, you remember that. You, <laughs> you gently, you want something. If you've ever got off track, and none, none of y'all ever have, I'm sure. But if you've ever got off track and somebody comes to you, another brother and sister, and just telling you off, you don't want to hear that. But if they come gently and lovingly and they begin, hey, come on, you can do it. Repent and continue to follow the Lord. That's the word, cardenizzo. It's a mending word. That's what the disciples used to do with their nets. Restore such a one. How? In a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. 
So this shows Paul's heart for using that word, and he's still writing them a tough letter to the Corinthians. And what he's saying is, on the matter, they must be one in mind together, and clearly they are not. Paul begins to tell them how he feels about their division in verse 11. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by, Chloe, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. There's strife and there's debate and there's arguments going on in the fellowship. That never happens here. <laughs> Y'all were supposed to laugh at that one. You didn't laugh because you know I'm lying. <laughs> yeah, it happens here sometimes. But that word declared, it's not Paul heard a rumor. It's manifest. It's evident. Paul wouldn't, I don't think Paul would go off on a rumor. He has the proof. And that's why he writes the letter. And most likely, these, these weren't people in the fellowship these were informers out of the fellowship. And if they would go in the city as they're doing business, they began to hear about the church in Corinth, how they were going sideways. And they go back and tell Paul, Stephanus, I hope I don't butcher these names too, too bad, Fortunatus, and I'm not even going to try to say that, but they're there. And when Paul hears this news from these three men, and they're not Paul's men. Don't they wouldn't even give him a hearing in the letter. These men come from Chloe's church or Chloe's assembly. And they've come back to Paul telling him what's going on. Verse 12 tells us, he gets to the point. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul or I am of Apollos or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. I just got a feeling that those who said they were of Christ, they were really stuck up. Oh, Christ just walked around. You're not holy like me and all that. But that's what Paul is dealing with, and that's what they used to say in Corinth. They found artifacts in the Acro, I forget the name of it. It was a mountain, but they found artifacts there that it would say, I am of Diana, it just means you're assimilating, you're hanging out with them. And so Paul is writing this letter, but he wants to be gentle, but he wants to speak the truth. Paul is saying, each one of you is saying that I'm of, a, of these people. We, we don't even know if Peter ever came to Corinth. We don't, we don't even know that. How they got Peter's name, I guess they, people talked about him since he was one of the 12, but the facts are we don't even know if he ever came, went to Corinth. That each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Paul says it shouldn't be like that. Verse 13, he says, is Christ divided? And that's a very picturesque word. Can you tear Christ up and give him, to, give him away in little pieces? That's what they mean. It's a picturesque word. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul says, I thank God that I was baptized, that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, 
lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. It didn't even matter much to Paul. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of, of words. So he hits that crew that's saying Sophia is better than Christ, saying that all you need is wisdom, and they mean the wisdom of the world. They're not talking about the wisdom that we read in the Bible here, but they're saying, just give me wisdom. And Paul, that's why he shoots at them right here. And that's the real problem at the church. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. They're even divided over baptisms. Imagine that. And we still do that today. Parts of the church says you have to be baptized to be saved. And it nowhere says that. Part of the church says it doesn't count if you're sprinkled. You need to be baptized. You have to be dunked in the water. And we just break all apart on those things. When I baptize, I say in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Some people just say, I'm going to baptize you in the name of Jesus. That's okay. The issue is, had, did it take? Did it take? Did the spiritual part work? Because when you're saved and you cry out for the Lord in repentance, the Bible says he puts us in Christ. That's the one that counts. That's the one that you should be, okay, did I go in Christ? Am I sure I'm there? That's what counts, not if you're water or not. It doesn't matter. What about the thief on the cross? He didn't get baptized. Calvary, Golgotha. Here's the important thing. There were three crosses, and they were not by mistake. The Passover night in Egypt, they were told to sacrifice the lamb at the threshold of the door. The Hebrew... Hebrew, Hebrew term is the soft, because when water would run up, they would have a place where the water would go to so their house, home wouldn't get flooded. That's where they killed the lamb. It's an Egyptian term. There was a trench, I said that, at the door, but they were told to sacrifice the lamb at the soft, in the doorway, and then they were told to put the blood on the door, on the doorpost and the lintel. So what you had was a slain lamb with a cross on either side that Passover night. All of this by God's design, by the way. And there at Golgotha, Christ was crucified between those two thieves. Initially, we know both of them railed at him mocking him. And we watched the process until one of them finally, they say, hey, we deserve what we're getting. That's called repentance. This man has done nothing wrong. Had they heard him say some of the seven uh, sayings of Jesus, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. So touched were they of this mutilated body, beaten figure, 
that one thief finally said, Lord, and what a gift that was to the father. In that condition, he spoke to one of the thieves and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's the lesson for all of us here. Two thieves, neither one more righteous than the other, nailed to a cross, hands can't move, they can't make their first holy communion, they can't be confirmed, they can't be baptized, all of the things we might have on our list. The only thing they can respond with is their heart. And that's all you need. And Paul says, for with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. God did this on person, I believe. He gave us two individuals, the same distance from eternity. Neither one could do anything. Neither one had a better resume than the other. The difference is one of them believed in their heart that Jesus is who he said he was. And Jesus tells him, today, you will be with me in paradise. Paul says, you guys are so divided. I'm glad I only dunked a couple of you. It's ridiculous what you are doing. Listen, we need to be wherever the rifts are in the church. That's where strong believers need to be. If there's division among us, Paul said, you need to be, you need to mend those nets. Before they went fishing, they cardinizzo the nets. They had to get them ready. Don't they wouldn't catch a fish. And that's what they did. Because we can't let down the nets here at Calvary Restore. If it's ripped with holes of division, we can't catch anything like that. Jesus said, by this, we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. My encouragement to you this morning, if you're not speaking to someone, what's the reason? It doesn't matter. The enemy loves that because it makes a visher in the congregation. And until it's straightened out, it gets bigger and bigger. We need to fix those if we want a, a wholesome church. You might say, well, they're wrong and I'm right. Who cares? Who cares? We'll get you a cap that says that. But in the kingdom of God, you can believe this. There's higher things than right or wrong. And he laid down his life. I think there's a scripture for us there. Philippians tells us, chapter 2, 5, five through 7, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. There's higher things than right and wrong this morning. First Peter, I love this. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, if you need a little push to, to mend those relationships. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials, which is to try you as though some strange things happen to you. 
but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. On their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. That's what we live for Christ for. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? I want a wholesome church. You guys, I know you want that too. But that's a, it's, it, it matters how we live. There's something higher than right or wrong. If we just fall in line, what's right or wrong, when someone does something to us, we'll be mad all the time because no, nobody does everything right. But there's something higher than right or wrong, and that's, that's okay, Lord. I'll let you handle him or he'll be okay. He's having a bad day. He's having a bad month. <laughs> hey. Let's not be nitpicky. Paul says, from now on, I see nobody. He says, I see everyone with the eyes of grace. If I see you with eyes of grace, if I see you with eyes of grace, it covers, of course, love covers a multitude of sin. And that's what a healthy church does because we're all, we're, we're frail human beings. We don't say everything correct all the time. And we have to, Okay, God, they're having a bad day. Wipe it off. You had a bad day for us, a really bad day. I wasn't saved before Jesus Christ died on the cross, and I don't think you were either. He had a bad day for me, and he had a bad day for you. So we need to just overlook things and walk in love. That's what Paul is telling this Corinthian church. That's what Paul is saying every time a pastor reads this uh, of these words, that's what it's for. We want a healthy church. And we'll have a healthy church if we love one another and we sh treat everybody, show everybody grace. The worship team can come up. Let's pray. Father, You're an amazing God. You picked us on our bad days. And you're teaching us to mend relationships together. There's something higher than right and wrong. That's walking with the Lord. Jesus said, if someone slaps me on one cheek, cheek turn the other. That's what I heard they did 
at these two funerals I went to. Lord, you are a great God. You were great enough to save us and you're great enough to sanctify us and you're great enough to justify us. May we have willing hearts to allow you to have your way in us, Father God. Lord, if there's anyone hurting, if there's anyone just is not healthy, I pray that you would go by and touch them. Give them quality of life so they can serve you better, Lord. Lord, it's tough in a fellowship. Different places, we come being raised differently, Lord, and let us conversate with everyone by your grace, knowing that we haven't arrived either knowing that we will never arrive until you call us home and when we see you, we'll become like you. So we should have a lot of room to forgive people. Lord, I pray that you would speak to hearts, that we would be trees of righteousness planted by the Lord, that we would be, we're already that sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, but we want to See it, Lord. We want to be that way in our everyday life, to put you first, to put you first, to put you first. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day. Lord, I just pray a special prayer for the Operation Christmas Child. I was touched by that. And everything they do might not be correct, Lord, but I know those boxes are changing lives. They're saving people. So I pray that we would give a harvest, that we will break our goal this year because we are truly being missionaries when we do that. I pray all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen.